on this episode of AV Week, protecting AV designs against patent fights, securing your AV systems from security hacks, and Biamp purchases Neat, the control systems company. All that and more next on AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 514, recorded Friday, June 25th, 2020. AV goes to Washington. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Crestron and by Sennheiser. For over 75 years, Sennheiser has been a leader in pro audio and is now offering a wide variety of touchless and traditional audio solutions for both corporate and educational campus-wide audio. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I am your host with us to discuss the news and information we have gathered this week. First and foremost, Charmaine Torella, and I can't roll my R's. She's from Barracks. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you so much, Mr. Albright. Also with us, a young lady that I met, um, well, I guess about a month or so ago, um, but she uh, comes to us by way of a week ago with AV3, but also Kierkegaard, Bren Walker. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you very much, Tim. Nice to be here. And, and you did a fantastic job. And if you want to check out Bren's uh, keynote, uh, she uh, you can still watch it uh, on demand. Uh, go to the av3event.com. Uh, you do have to register, but you know, that's a small thing. Uh, and go watch her, uh, her, her um, um, keynote, but also me and Megan introducing some smart people. Uh, uh, from uh, Vixa, uh, by way of Atlanta, Joey Lloyd. Welcome, ma'am. Hi there. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, uh, my buddy from uh, the other part of Canada, uh, Bren's from British Columbia, Matt's um, basically from, from Detroit, but uh, London, Ontario. So how are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, first story comes to us from our friends over at SCN and AVNetwork.com. Biamp has announced the acquisition of Neats, uh, an AV control system company from Denmark, uh, per the release, quote unquote, Neats offers a family of controllers, interfaces, and software that would expand on Biamp's existing control options. Uh, there are some Neats products actually available on Amazon, which I find interesting. I'm not quite sure how long that will last. Neats does have an app on the Apple Store for control, so you can at least check that out for right now. Um, uh, Charmaine, we're going to start with you on this. What does this mean uh, for the AV market as, as Biamp expands uh, on, on control? It means Biamp is getting into the control market share, which means other people who are already there are going to experience a little bit of shrinkage, especially now. Um, also, neat, the product itself. So, you know, the control application or the control solution they're putting forth is for really small, mid-sized rooms, not the big, you know, you know, complex rooms. So it's supposed to be easy to deploy, drag and drop, you know, configuration, which means for the integrator, for us, um, it's going to be cheaper to implement, which means cheaper for the customer, which means the customer is probably going to look to those options more than the more high uh, cost uh, option. But the concern is, uh, NEAT is Danish, Denmark. I don't think many people uh, stateside have heard of them. So I'm going to be really you know, curious to see how Biamp rolls that product set out 
you know, basically with their solution set to uh, make us familiar. And yeah, you're right. It is on Amazon. And the question of warranty coverage, what's that about? All those things are going to come into question because something like that, and I know on their website, 14-day guarantee money back. Now, in the commercial world, that's not going to really work. So to see how Biamp is going to roll that out, um, definitely interested to see that solution um, for now, post-pandemic, more small, more mid-market, you know, mid-sized rooms instead of large conference rooms, uh, a lot more rooms like that are coming into play. Charmaine, are you finding that companies and particularly those in the um, military sector are looking for control outside of China for, for software and products that are not there just due to safety and security? So do you think that even though you mentioned they're Danish, do you think that that will be something that people might latch on to? Depends on the industry. So not necessarily government, as you mentioned, Joey, but it depends on the industry. I don't think government is going to look at this particular solution because of where it's manufactured, right, where it came from. But I think that other industries might, um, small asset, you know, asset management, smaller uh, hedge funds, maybe. Um, but um, yeah, I don't think government will look at this quite yet. Again, it's going to depend on how Biamp rolls this out. You know, the information, we need to know more. You know, you know more needs to be told about needs. All right. Matt, interesting piece here, uh, and, and not not for nothing, but Biamp has, has you know, done a number of acquisitions uh, with mm -hmm. Rashid Skoff as, as the head. They are part of Highland Partners. Um, so most of, and I'm, I'm saying this a little bit hesitantly, I believe most of, if not all of the acquisitions they've they've purchased since uh, Highland Partners purchased Biamp, those products and those brands have all stayed put. Mm -hmm. Meaning when they purchased, um, when they purchased um, oh, community speakers, when they purchased um, uh, the, uh, the the microphone app, um, Oh, what's it? crowd, crowd mics. Good Lord. The name just went out of my head. Uh, those brands have always all, all already stuck with the fact that Nates is, is kind of a consumer ish product. Do you see this where, where Biamp is going to do what they've done in the past, which is kind of add the Neats brand and everything into their infrastructure or just buying them for the IP for the intellectual property and rolling that into Biamp control? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I would argue that unless Neats holds a much larger uh, level of name recognition to the uh, the ISC crowd, the, the European crowd, that there's no real benefit in keeping it as a, as a standalone nameplate. Whereas with community or, or crowdsource, um, crowd mics, uh, those companies have an established name that means something to people. If you take community speakers and just rebrand them as Biamp speakers, then you have to almost tell the story of, well, it's a community speaker, but it's got the Biamp logo because, you know, and you go down that that rabbit trail. With Neat, as I said, unless they have a massive uh, name recognition in the U.S. or, or sorry, in in Europe, there's no real negative to rolling that into their uh, their their primary brand and their uh, primary branding. The the one pushback might be 
or or maybe the added benefit might be because they may have some uh, awareness on Amazon, a very easy way to eliminate that awareness and, and disconnect from that is to rebrand it. And, you know, I think we hate on the fact that they're on Amazon because, well, they're on Amazon, but that's not really necessarily a bad thing given where it looks like they play in the market, right? If that's something where a tech manager uh, or a, you know, onsite IT staff can look at it and get some understanding and some knowledge of what it is, let's, let's be honest, they're already shopping on Amazon. It might just be a really easy way for Biamp to continue to, uh, you know, move some numbers and maintain it on Amazon. It, it's, I, I, I don't, I can't speak to how Biamp's going to approach it. I don't think that they're going to make a major misstep one way or the other. All right. Joey, we mentioned the fact that uh, you, you work for Avixa, but in your previous life, you also worked for a manufacturer. Take a, a kind of both sides of, the, of this and talk for a second about, you know, the challenges that, you know, are involved in bringing a new brand and, and bringing a new company in. Well, I think from the manufacturer side, anytime you're looking at partnering, buying, bringing that that new product in, you know, there's there's all the questions of how does it work. You know, you you spend a lot of time on the business side and the financials, but when you actually get down into the nitty gritty of how it works, there always seems to become you know engineering questions and and whatnot. Um, and it's it's certainly um, a challenge to to bring in new new products and services um, into your existing business. But on the same note, when you can buy something that's really great um, and partner with another company and you just don't have the internal know-how to do it and you can go get it already done, as long as it's not necessarily a bolt-on, you know, it doesn't feel like a bolt-on, but it really feels like a part of your package. I think that's that's a smart smart way to go. And I think, you know, Charmaine, you, you certainly said it well in talking about how this will affect the business and those in the player space that are, are going to feel the ramifications of it. So, you know, we're watching uh, acquisitions, you know, all over the marketplace. And, and I think it will continue to, to pick up momentum um, as we, we roll into the next few years to see how the, the market is coming together. Bren, talk for a second from kind of a designer standpoint and, and a 50,000 foot view about control in general. Um, Charmaine mentioned the fact that, that you know, Biamp getting into this space means that there might, may very well be uh, less uh, for some of the other players I involved. Where, where does that kind of put Biamp? I mean, it's not nothing against Neats, you know, but they are not the, the number one or number two control system when people think about AV control. So, mm -hmm. you know, where, what, do they, what does Biamp now have to do to become front of mind for folks like you, but also for, for folks like Matt and Charmaine? Well, I think part of it, it depends on really what was underneath this acquisition. Um, you know, there's product, obviously, but the, the word that I keyed in on when I read about it was the software. And are they, are they getting, you know, some rock star software developer talent? Because that doesn't necessarily exist at, the, at other manufacturers, which I think is the long-term play. So from a standpoint, you know, I'm working on a project now that will open in 2027. I don't expect a whole lot of touch panels in that building. Um, I expect a lot of that control is gonna be bring your own device. Um, certainly that's where things should, should be moving, one would think, and we'd be seeing more, like as with everything else, more software-based than hardware-based. So I like it. 
um, because I think the more the more choice there is for controls, obviously for us, the better it, the better it is in terms of for those of us who want to do design, we do real design and try to push things. So I'm I'm all keyed in on the software aspect of it. I, I thought this morning, in fact, about a box that I have full of all these old Palm Pilots and handheld devices and how none of that tech matters anymore and how touch panel tech is going to go away. There's just, it's obvious. We're seeing, we're voice activating at home. We've got a touch screen in our pocket. After a while, you'll only need that hardware and applications where you can't do it another way. Yeah, absolutely. And Brent had me at, at Palm Pilot because that was, again, old, old school technology. Uh, absolutely. All right. Uh, next story uh, actually comes to us from our friends over at um, Sound of Communications. A federal jury has sided with Absin in a patent infringement lawsuit. In 2018, Ultravision alleged nine Absin LED products infringed on Ultravision's patents. Absin wasn't the only manufacturer Ultravision went after. Actually, the, the Dallas-based company separately sued 37 companies, including Barco, Elation Lighting, Layard, Panasonic, Samsung, and nanolumens, among others. Uh, the jury found in, Abs in the Epson case that none of the nine accused product lines infringed on any of the asserted patent claims. Uh, the jury also said that the patent claims were invalid. Ultra Ultravision has won some of their uh, patent cases uh, since 2018, including one against optoelectronics. Uh, cases against Barco and Samsung were dismissed. Mr. Scott, um, Understanding that you are Canadian, some of these things don't necessarily impact you, but some of them do. What should we look at when adjusting how we litigate some of these patents? Uh, and the reason I, I'm asking this question is, is we've had conversations about Sure and, and, and Clear One for what seems like forever. This, this case here, <laughs> these are being settled by and, and decided on by not just lay people, right, but by people who study the law. In this case, it was a jury, a jury of, of peers. Well, I can almost guarantee you that there's a good percentage of, of the people in that jury that weren't AV professionals, that weren't, you know, um, design or, or uh, you know, video wall professionals. How do we look at adjusting how we look at these? Well, and I, the, the capital side of me loves litigation over IP. It's fantastic. And uh, full disclosure, I come from a house of lawyers, so I'm all about it. Like literally, all of them. Literally. Yep. Oh I'm, boy. I'm the, I'm the non-lawyer. <laughs> oh boy yep. is right, Brent. <laughs> yep. <clears throat> so from a, from a litigation standpoint, um, I have no problem with it. Where that stops is I cannot stand patent trolls. And that is a big part of this conversation. Clearly. Is, clearly. And, and we've followed this with multiple vendors and multiple manufacturers over, gosh, how, however long I've known you, Tim. And when it's a valid approach of, hey, you are using our IP and you are not paying us a license to do so, then sure, go to court, win your case, and get paid. What this smells of is we've patented a bunch of stuff and you seem to be pretty close so we're going to come after you and we're going to throw anything we can find because it doesn't cost a lot to have your lawyers who are on retainer write some some documents submit them to the court and go to town 
Um, what Absin did, which was genius, was they essentially put together a consortium of nine other manufacturers, if I am remembering that correctly, to fight this. And they hired a, a fairly large legal firm uh, to, to defend this and go to town on it. That's what needs to happen because at some point, uh, these patent trolls will learn that it, this just isn't profitable. The downside is every time they win, it's another uh, validation that they can do that. For the industry, this is terrible because it ties up respectfully an industry that is not usually a behemoth. We don't, like Absin doesn't need to spend money on lawyers to defeat a patent troll. And there's other manufacturers that I won't comment on um, who also don't need to be spending money fighting every single little patent troll thing of where I can put a something on a ceiling. Yeah. You start off by saying that, you know, um, with mapping in Canada, look, we need global intellectual property reform, period. Mm -hmm. we've, Amen. We've gotten Sister, very say that far. again. <laughs> say, say that again. Say that again for the folks in the back. We need global intellectual property reform. There's, we've gotten away from why intellectual property exists. It's not so that you can keep collecting on it forever. It is so that uh, it's a means for actually publishing an innovation so that other people too will eventually expand on that innovation. So you're not supposed, it's not about how many patents have I either filed myself or acquired right in order to just try to defend patents to make money and until we have global intellectual property for reform you know these these issues are going to keep happening it's clear it clearly affects the media side of things which is why it has taken so long for us to get our jukebox in the cloud like everybody thought we were going to get in 2000 because how do you how do you deal with the copyright regime the copyright regime again intellectual property reform it's got to happen at the WTO or some kind of global global level. Keep in mind that the 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 reason that it's you know, and I know you said it in Joe in just about Canada, but the reason the majority of these lawsuits are filed in the U.S. is due to the way the le the U.S. legal system works. It yeah. is in the 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 standard to prove um, a, a a patent infringement in the Canadian system, in the UK system, in a lot of the European systems is a lot higher. So they don't do it. There, there's a handful of cases with, with Barco that were filed against Barco in um, Belgium. Very rarely do you see this happen outside of the US because they just don't win. And, I, and actually Barco went after a couple of other folks um, yep. you know, based on the, the quick share. Yeah, but the key is, you know, like Matt said, happens in the U.S. the most. And the reason why that is, is because we don't have the right legislators that understand how to legislate towards those types of reforms. And that's a big problem that we've always had in the U.S. So until we can get that type of legislation, those types of legislative bodies, people, resources, that understand the technology, the patents, that understand what this means. We you know, always have this in the U.S. for a while, and and this will probably be another decade or two problem for us, and you will continue to see this happening. 
in the U.S. And as long as the trial lawyers have as much power as they have and donate as much money as they donate to Congress. Lobbies, yeah, absolutely. That's that's where it is. There's, 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 it's just we have to, in terms of the governance here, um, we have to get better, especially as it pertains to technology, understanding how to govern it, which our legislators here in the U.S., let's be honest, they don't. No clue. They really seriously, not a clue. So that's, that's, that's kind of where we are. But if we vote and get those that do understand it, you know, you got to find those those people that understand it. But that's the key, finding those people that do get it, and very few do. And the industry, our industry needs to advocate for ourselves as well. We need to organize and advocate, and because they're going to listen to whoever's writing the biggest check or whoever bugs them the most. So if you can't write the big check, you need to have a lot of people bugging them to get your agenda heard. Yeah. And also, our industry needs to be recognized with the government. That's the biggest thing I gripe about. Audiovisual, what's that? Um, the federal government doesn't know what we are. They throw us under other categories, right? So we need to this tell on ourselves. Like I always say, we always have to learn how to tell on ourselves more, the AV industry, and evangelize ourselves to the right parties. And that's the next step, DC. Mm -hmm. That's the next step. Oh, that's where we have to go. A consortia of organizations for AV can do that. If they bond together, that's a possibility. That would be great if we can come together and do that to really advance our, our mission and you know that activity. We have to. Yeah, the architects are doing it. The engineers are doing it. We should be doing it. All right, Joey, last, uh, you'll have you wrap this one up. Take a look at this from a, a marketing standpoint. How does this help? I mentioned the, the absent. How does this help? I mentioned the fact that Samsung won a case against against uh, Ultravision. Um, Barco did as well. When you look at, at that, how does it, that help those manufacturers who did win in the marketplace? It's an interesting question. Um, and I haven't been on that side of it, per se. Um, you know, my experience is a little bit counter to what Matt was saying, that it's, it's real easy to go file a lawsuit for a patent. I worked for a manufacturer that patents were a really big deal and it wasn't cheap to defend. It wasn't cheap to have the patents and it certainly wasn't cheap to defend. And it, it becomes more and more difficult as things look alike and the more something looks alike while it's technically different, it removes the, the consumer desire for it um, so I, I think it's great that, that Apson and, and the consortium won. I think it was incredibly smart the way that they went about it, um, and didn't go about it alone. Um, and I think it, 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 I, I wish I had a better answer for you Tim, about the, the marketing for it and, and what's good or bad about it. I mean, I think it's, you, you kind of take the licking and you keep on ticking and, and thank goodness this just gets to go in the rear view mirror of, we're still here, we're still doing great things, our products are outstanding and we just keep going. Yeah, and I think that there's, you know, that difference between the manufacturer defending their patents who are also spending money on other parts of their business and patent trolls who are just spending money trying to make money off their patents. Yeah, I, I'd argue that any of the companies that are, again, having to defend their patents or, or sorry, defend their products, they don't even want us talking about this. They want this to go away because all it does is every time you mention a patent lawsuit, it just gets other people going, I wonder if they're close to one of ours. 
because there's a lot of people out there who think like that. Again, lawyers. <laughs> so because because you're being sued by, you know, brand Y, like like let's say that brand Y sues, I don't know, Samsung uh, mm -hmm. for a phone, right? Well, are you as good as Samsung? Are you close enough to Samsung to even be be suing them? Is that kind of what you're getting at, Matt? No, I'm I'm getting at that there are companies out there who have never thought that again, just to use this as an example, that an app something in an absent panel is similar to something that they have. But as soon as this comes to light and then they start looking at the findings, they start looking into it all of a sudden there's a bunch of research and reverse engineering that they didn't have to do that then becomes public knowledge. Mm -hmm. None of these companies want us talking about this and bringing any more light to the fact that they've had to disclose in public court documents because very rarely do these get sealed. Some of the insider information, it costs a lot of money to reverse engineer something to bring it in and start really digging into it. They're having to do that work for you and literally making it public in a discovery. Nobody wants us talking about this. Unless I can bill it for time. Well, you can't and I can't. So uh, we'll move on to our, our final story. Um, final story comes to us from Tech Decisions, uh, mytechdecisions.com. A new report from a company called Zeke uh, Scalar. Zscaler? Zscaler. Uh, it's a cybersecurity company. Indicates that the movement to the cloud is actually a risk to organizations. The report found vulnerabilities in the 1,500 organizations they studied. The number they used was, quote, unquote, 400,000 servers were exposed and discoverable over the Internet. I say that in quotes because they didn't say how many, what, what percentage was, was discoverable. They just said there was 400,000 servers over the course of 1,500 organizations. So I don't want to get too crazy scary with that, but that is the number they used. Uh, a company also found exposures with public cloud infrastructures such as AWS, Azure, uh, and Google. Brent, we'll start with you on this. Um, you talked about the future of, of Pro-AV and talked about some of these things. How, how do we get integrators, how do we get you know um, tech managers and IT managers to understand um, the seriousness of, of AV security, whether that's you know, remote monitoring and management, whether that's, you know, uh, uh, you know, using leveraging soft codecs and more and more that we are, or even just, you know, our, our employees, you know, working remotely and, and leveraging the cloud more. I think it starts with getting leadership to understand the cost, you know, because it's it, the, and the potential risk, right? Because we're bottom line motivated in North America, let's face it. And we're, we know that you know, this just exposes something that was already a, a huge problem um, and already not being addressed, adding additional points of exposure because people are working from home. It's not a surprise that that would be the case, right? But I think that the, the AVIT staff actually have to use numbers available to them to show their leadership why there needs to be a specific initiative to address it, an initiative that is funded and that's supported at the top. Uh, it's the only way you're gonna achieve any kind of change, really. You've gotta have support at the top and you've, got, and you've gotta fund it, just like any other, if you're trying to do a DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, you gotta have leadership at the top and you gotta fund it. So, so that's why 
pay attention, to get people to pay attention to it, and to try to make it happen before you have a before you have an event. Now you can talk about other events, which I think is a great way to help people understand the magnitude of exposure. If you if you basically say these are the events that are happening, this is the loss that's happened so far from these types of types of events just in the last three months, six months, twelve months. I want to think that money will motivate. It's it's the best way, in my view. But yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Charmaine, uh, how, how do how do tech managers safeguard their systems? Right when when we're talking about stuff like that, um, a lot of folks are moving to remote monitoring, uh, or you know they're also moving to these hybrid systems, and those hybrid systems are inherently leveraging more and more cloud devices and more and more cloud services. So how do they make sure that their systems and their infrastructure is safe? investment in cybersecurity. This has been a thing, and this is what's frustrating for me. You know, you know, I come from the IT side. Mm -hmm. About 15 years ago, they, a lot of companies, a lot of the cybersecurity companies approached a lot of enterprises, you know, discussing the need for cybersecurity and the implications 15 years ago, right? 15 years ago. And I've been in the AV industry for 10. So uh, Microsoft was having a lot of these, you know, conversations with cybersecurity. They started working on it. But a lot of enterprise like, oh, what's the cost? What's the money? Oh, no, tune it out. Eh, no, no, never mind. Fast forward to today. Right now, most of those systems are vulnerable and a lot of enterprises are behind. And they don't have a plan or a strategy in terms of their cybersecurity thinking, oh, it's okay, you know, we have a government that's going to protect or has something in play and we don't and going this this today's session should be av goes to washington dc <laughs> or mr albright goes to washington dc because that's what no, no we, we don't need albright av is fine we, av not, go AV or av go. nation av goes to these washington dc like mr smith goes to you know washington dc because that's what needs to happen we need um the government, the legislation here in the United States especially, they don't have anything to protect uh, us efficiently, enterprise or anything from attacks. Right now, Russia has had a few years of playing around to see where they can go and longer than that actually. There's a lot of other hacks that foreign entities have hacked into our system before six or four years ago. They've been playing around and testing systems all throughout for the last two decades or so this is you have to make that investment there is no if ands or buts av and it both have to come together all the tech sectors not just av and it telecom as well the most vulnerable is the telecom i came i came from telco we had to start and they and what's funny is telco's always been vulnerable they still haven't implemented all the, the protocols they need to secure their systems. They still are working on older servers and things that are not up to par. We as a tech sector, the tech sector technology have to come together. And this has to be the forefront of our efforts for all of our organizations and enterprises. And businesses have to make this investment, have to come up with a strategic plan, a good strategic partner to implement these securities because it's until our legislative branch figures out how to deal with it, a lot of things could happen between now and then. And, and that's the danger that faces us. 
So um, we can't wait for someone else to think of the idea. We have to start working together to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more frequent than people think because they hear about the big stories and they think that big story, the pipeline story, the food supply story, like they think that's not gonna happen to them, that it's happening at these big levels. It's happening at all kinds of levels. Ransomware is happening at all kinds of levels. And if you just look at those big stories and think, oh, that's not our world, it's our risk is low, you're wrong. If you have, if you have any data exposed in, a in the cloud, you have exposure, period. Now I will say this, we have a private market, that private market increases the vulnerability as we saw with the East Coast and the gas supply in, in the United States because that was a private company. And that private company didn't have some things in place that maybe a government entity might have had. But if the private company is Amazon though, right? Like you gotta think AWS, they have so much risk for themselves if there are issues with AWS that they have to invest in the security of it. So in that case, that big behemoth might actually be functioning better than the government would function at doing it because of what they know and because of their resource base. Yeah, absolutely. Joey, what does this mean? You, you work for Avexa, you're in Atlanta, technically Avexa is in, is in uh, Virginia. Lots of remote workers for Avexa, lots of cloud services as well. What do you think this will do to kind of that whole push for not just remote workers, but you know, this hybrid and this, this move to the cloud? I think it just proves the point for smarter, stronger IT departments. I think, um, Charmaine, you talked a lot about, you know, the, the IT AV world and how they come together and work together. And I think this is a pretty constant conversation in, in our world um, is AV IT. And I think that that's a whole different discussion in and of itself. But, you know, for me, it's those are the table stakes you better darn well know how to secure things if you're working in AV. But I think what we're seeing is if you stretch out this story and you start to look at it, this is AV and IT not playing well together in the sandbox because if they were talking at the same time, doing things together, perhaps some of some of these security issues wouldn't be happening. And so that's that's where it's it's not just, you know, the the big, you know, funny, you know, hashtag AV is IT, but it, it's really how do they play well together and how do we keep ourselves from these types of issues? I think the last time I was on your show, Tim, we talked about a casino who got hacked through their fish tank. That that casino happens to be in Vegas. Um, actually, a friend of mine is going to stay at that casino next week. Um, she doesn't have any fish. so. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Scott, you'll have the last word on this. Uh, Matt not only works in homes, but also does a lot in, in the business sector as well, uh, working with networks and, and the AV side. How serious are folks taking this uh, on, on the ground, in the IT departments, in the AV departments, when it comes to making sure that their systems are secure? They're not. Well, well there you go. Cybersecurity is a whole other animal well beyond the grasp of your average IT uh, manager. When we start talking security, even when we're coming in from an AV side or even as the IT partner side, we start talking cybersecurity, we start talking about threat matrices. And the instant response is always, well, we have a firewall or we have a VPN. It's like, that doesn't do anything 
Like, it, it does something. It is a good start. There are companies out there that don't have either, and that's bad. Um, but when you start looking at something like Zero Trust, with which the article talked about, very few companies that I've ever dealt with have even started to broach that topic. They are still sitting there in that um, moat and, and, and drawbridge concept of we're going to block everything coming in. And that's it. Without realizing that the last probably two, three years, I can't think of a th single threat that we dealt with for a client that was not originated within their systems. When you start talking about remote workers, it gets worse because at least when all the employees were on, on site in an office using hopefully lockdown machines, those IT managers, as stretched thin as they were, had some control. Now that you start having clients remoting in, and I don't really care how they're remoting into their systems, whether it's cloud, whether it's a, a server in an office somewhere, it doesn't matter. That is now another piece removed from the IT managers being able to control that and be aware of that. And Charmaine, you've been in this for years. It is nothing to do the, to, to ask someone and, and dig through a problem and go, so why'd you click that? Like that was obviously not, you know, from Bank of America. It had the logo. Like, that happens a lot. Real, like we're still at, you've got to check the email. The thread is inside the house. Yeah. Yes. The, the, the biggest threat is the actual employees. And they don't mean to be the threat. They don't mean to do something stupid. But gosh, if you were to put a USB drive on a lobby shelf or in a bathroom or on a water cooler in most offices across North America, I can guarantee you it would not sit there for more than eight hours before someone picked it up and goes... What it's an eight gigger. I bet it's got something good. Click. What what I love about this that nobody can see is the fact that Bren and Charmaine are both shaking their heads, um, yeah, uh, versusly uh, and I, agreeing. With I them. so want security to be at the forefront of the AV versus IT conversation, and unfortunately, it's not. Yeah. What we need to get to, what manufacturers need to get to, is an understanding that the majority of your systems don't need to go anywhere. When you put in a conference room system, it doesn't need to access the server. Stop trying to get it permissions to do that. It literally needs to let you connect to something and connect to Zoom and go out. That's it. You don't need the server. You don't need the cloud servers. You don't need to be able to get into, you know, the CEO's office. You don't need 14 printers. Stop. Like, Limited access is key. I'd love to see it someday. All right. That'll be a good place to stop. Thank you all so much. Charmaine Torella from Barrex. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. How do people connect with you? People, you can connect with me by Googling my name. I'm just kidding. By looking me up on LinkedIn, Charmaine Torella. I'll roll the R at this time Thank for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> and I am also on Twitter. Joey Lloyd, thank you, ma'am. Thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. How do people connect with you or uh, or Avixa? 
You can find me on the Twitters at Joe Lloyd, and you can find Avixa at at Avixa, and uh, you can always email me, uh, jlloyd at avixa.org. Oh, Mr. Matt D. Scott, thank you, sir. How do people connect with you? Uh, you can usually find me on Twitter at Matt D. Scott and pretty much every other social platform. You can find me here at Aviation. You can find me at omegaaudiovideo.com. Very good. Brent, very nice to have you uh, on this program. I appreciate it. Uh, how do people connect with you if they'd like to? Thanks for having me. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Brenda J. Walker, or just go to brendajwalker.com, uh, or email me, bwalker at kirkegaard.com. Thank you all so much. Uh, for me, for Tim Albright, don't follow me on the Twitters, uh, but go by the website if you would, please, avianation.tv. That's avianation.tv. You'll find this program and a host of others, including one where you get to see Matt uh, on a weekly basis um, uh, talking about the residential side of the AV industry. Uh, and if I looked at the calendar correctly, he has actually has a really good show coming up next week. Uh, so he'll record that on Monday. It'll post on Wednesday. So uh, also while you're there, check out our sponsors, these folks who will help us bring you AV Week and Resi Week and all the others uh, and coverage of Cedia uh, Expo starting the 1st of September. So we are about two-ish months away from that. And then Infocom, uh, which registration for that is already open. So we'll get to see Joey in person, uh, Charmaine, uh, and hopefully as long as, uh, as, long as uh, you know, Justin let you guys out of the country, Brennan, Matt. Uh, we'll get to see Brennan and Matt. So all that. So all that and more at avianation.tv. It's avianation.tv. Thanks so much, so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. That's all the time we have for AV Week.